Masters. Thank you for returning for our third year on the air. We're glad to have you with us. Now, we are down to just myself for the next few weeks, ladies and gentlemen. Willem is away, but we'll return later this month. At least that's what he tells me. Until then, folks, I am the one running the show. Now, unfortunately, we are coming back this year under some very grim circumstances, I am afraid. Over the break, news spread across the province about a young OPP officer, Constable Greg Pierschala, who was tragically shot and killed in the line of duty. This episode is not about that event, though. It is an ongoing investigation, and the accused is still to appear before the courts to be tried. However, that has not stopped the politicians and armchair experts from rushing to the microphones. In the wake of that incident, hyperbole has flown around from federal conservative leader Pierre Poilievre as well as Ontario Premier Doug Ford about broken bail systems and, of course, needing to be tougher on crime. All this geared at driving their supporters further into their respective camps. However, one story had slipped under the radar amongst all the rhetoric, and that was a tweet from a previous guest on this podcast, Carl Dockstatter. On December 28th, Carl tweeted in reply to the Halton Police's posting of the Thin Blue Line logo on their feed. His tweet said, My heart aches for Constable Gregor's Pierce family, friends, and colleagues. His death was wrong. Sharing the Thin Blue Line scares me and scares many non-white people. This distracts from a time when we should be coming together to grieve his, this loss. Shortly toward, afterwards, the Halton PD took down the image. There was nothing more said or done on either side of but the exchange. It did bring up a plethora of thoughts and feelings on both sides of this debate, though. The thin blue line imagery holds deep meaning. It is an image that conjures up a lot of emotions and history to process. It means one thing to a police officer and their friends and family. It means something completely different to a member of the BIPOC community. Policing is something that is not going away. It is impossible to change that. However, their relationship with Canadians is something that is very fluid, and I think in the process of change. How police in the 905, Ontario, and Canada at large interact and engage with members of the BIPOC community is something that is very much on the tip of many people's tongues in today's world. I wanted to speak with Carl about his tweet, the re reaction to it, as well as whether or not he thought a middle ground could be met on the thin blue line. Carl is an award-winning Indigenous journalist and the co-host of the One Dish, One Mic podcast. He is also host of The Drive on C10 CKTV out of St. Catharines. He joins me today. Okay, well, thanks, Carl uh, Docksetter, for coming back on. I think this is the third time you've been on the on the show, so we thank you very much for taking the time out of your uh, busy, busy schedule to come on and, and talk about this um, this this important discussion or this this important topic that need that really needs to be uh be had by all all people in uh in ontario the 905 and i think canada uh as a whole so thank you very much for for coming on yeah it's my pleasure i'm working towards my five timers jacket right we, i get an official 905 versus five timers jacket with, let, let, let me talk appearance. to the boss let me talk to the boss and we'll see what what we can uh what we can make happen by the boss you don't mean roland you mean you mean mrs joel <laughs> well yeah she, <laughs> absolutely um yeah uh oh no also i should say uh because this is our first episode of the new year so happy new year to you and uh and all the best for a good good prosperous 2023 for you yeah hoya and uh no yeah happy new year's for sure um unfortunately you know over the course of the, of the new year's holiday you know tragedy kind of struck in in and around the 905 um with a uh, constable uh Prischala, and i'm hoping i'm pronouncing his last name correctly uh, to his friends and family, uh, was shot and killed in the line of duty, uh, to put it bluntly. We aren't going to discuss the ins and outs of that case. That's an ongoing investigation. Criminal charges will be investigated uh, over time. We're not here to discuss that. What I do want to talk about is a tweet that I saw from you about it, where Halton PD <clears throat> tweeted out the, the thin blue line logo flag on their in their Twitter account, and you had a response to that. Um, and I'm wondering, just can you tell us what what it is that you tweeted, and also 
you personally, what does the thin blue line logo or that that statement mean to you as an Indigenous person uh, in Canada? Yeah, so so I saw like first off, I if if anybody that that's connected to to Officer Purchala in in any way is is listening, I I, I have to give my utmost condolences and. And I, I mean, I have, I have strong opinions about policing and policing as an institution uh, in the same way that I have anti-war feelings. Uh, but as the son of a veteran, I, you know, hate the war, not the soldier. And, and I think it's the same thing when it, when it comes to, to policing. Uh, I, I have a lot of respect for people that wear uh, the uniform, though a lot's changed since 2020. And, and that, that's, that's what kind of le- uh, that's what kind of led me to the tweet uh, that I that I had made. Uh, I, I said in the in the tweet as a reaction to seeing the thin blue line that was tweeted from the official Halton Police Services account. Uh, that tweet has now been removed, by the way. It's it's no longer there. Um, but I, I saw the tweet, very respectful tweet, uh, very very strong sentiment that that I tend to echo, uh, mourning the unnecessary loss of life that that happened. But then using a thin blue line imagery over top of the OPP logo and and so that's where you know unfortunately and and I, I wasn't the first person to politicize this issue when it comes to comments that the premier made and and even uh thomas creek uh, opp commissioner thomas creek and in sort of backward you know uh backhanded ways had made some political commentary but but uh, anyways i saw i saw the thin blue line and so i think like we all do in in this day and age i i grabbed my phone and and just put together a tweet that, that said my heart aches for constable uh, Gregor, uh, Greg Perchella's family, friends, and colleagues. His death was wrong. Sharing the thin blue line scares me and scares many non-white people. This distracts from a time when we should be coming together to grieve this loss. And, and that was it. And, and I didn't give it much thought. And, you know, my, my tweets these days are getting dozens of likes, which makes me very happy. You know, one or two retweets, usually Sean, uh, my, my uh, radio bestie, and then uh, we'll retweet it from our official One Dish, One Mic account. Uh, but but this, this got a little bit of attention, both, both negative and, and positive. So, you know, I, I guess you, I, you and I come from very different backgrounds. And you know, when you, I'll be honest, when I see the thin blue line, I, I understand there's controversy around it from uh, the BIPOC community, but it does mean something different to me as a white man in this country. Uh, I, I, I have at best a passing indifference to, to it when I see it. I understand. And I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get, trying to, what I want to do with this podcast episode is kind of open that door and, and open that dialogue to just really understand your reaction is very much different from mine. I mean, I, I'm at best neutral on it. You, when you see it, and I assume other other people in the BIPOC uh, uh, communities see it. What's your What's your initial reaction when you when you see that that logo or that 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 terminology used? Just can you kind of give us like your first three seconds, your first gut instinct when you see that? A fear, fear, uh, with without hesitation. Uh, police in general uh, scare me. I, I mean, I've been I've been recently wrongfully arrested. That's what we talked about the last time I was right. I was on the show. Um, <laughs> we seeing seeing everything that happened with, with finally some awareness around how I I hope we all agree now that Black Lives Matter and and that was disputed before 2020, but but it now seems that that's shifted into the popular convention that everybody acknowledges that that Black Lives Matter. There's a reason that that expression has gained a certain level of traction, and there's an acknowledgement that that it's because Black lives haven't mattered, and and in in the United States, but but unfortunately also in Canada, police forces over incarcerate, over arrest, uh, and and ultimately exhibit too much lethality towards Black people, Indigenous people, and generally non-white people. So so it's it's fear, it's it's automatic fear when I see a cop in and of themselves and, and I have to I have to deal with cops in my in my uh my job in the radio my former job with the friendship center involved me dealing with police on a regular basis uh there I I will get past that fear understanding that there's a person behind the uniform and I'll be able to see the person the uniform itself is still scary but then if I it, as soon as I see that that patch on the uniform the defiant way that the Calgary Police Service is is continuing to to wear the patches on their uniforms in spite of directives from from local politicians to to do otherwise it it scares me and and it it I directly connect it to the lethality of this this is one of the only occupations that that has to carry a firearm everywhere they go everything they do 
Yeah. It, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in what you said and, uh, you know, we're going to try and do that. I, I, I'm going to take the, the opposite side in that, you know, I'm going to give the, the Halton P PD the benefit of the doubt in that they didn't post that in a sense of antagonistic, uh, I'm def definitely don't think it was a matter of like we're better than white pe uh, not non-white citizens. Um, what I think it was a matter of solidarity to show we understand the dangers that the inherent dangers of this of the profession of policing. This is unfortunately a real threat to in that line of work. And Officer uh, Constable uh, Kershala did pay the ultimate price in the line of uh, line of his duty, and it's tragedy on all levels and i want to say that's where it was it, ca it came from came from a sense of love honor and respect for officer pichala and the other officers who do this daily work you know there are there are people who are listening to say yeah that's what you know, that's what the thin blue line means to me that's that's what it means it's i, I want to show respect and honor for the men and women who put their lives on the line and a just you give us your our thought your thoughts on that point of view uh you know that that there are people that's probably shedding into the into the radio right now as they're listening to this podcast say that's what you know that's what the thin blue line means to me you can't take that away from me can you maybe just give a your your statement on that yeah I, I don't i don't mind answering that when when i tweeted uh got i got a range of tweets uh some uh, most mostly supportive tweets, uh, but but I did actually the the president of our local Niagara Regional Police Association replied to the tweet, uh, Patrick McGilley, and and he said he's replying on his behalf, not on behalf of of the police, the Niagara Regional Police Service or the or the Niagara Regional Police Association uh, that he's the president of. Um, but Patrick McGilley said that said Carl, I'm saddened that you feel that way about a, a blue line with two black lines on each side. I will be more than happy to meet with you to and discuss my personal perspective on the symbol that represents sisterhood, brotherhood, and the sadness we feel for those who sacrificed for us. And, and I, you know, I really, I thought about it and, and I thought, well, you know, this is an officer coming from a genuine place and, and talking about their heartfelt loss. And, and I'll never know what it's like to be a police officer and, and to feel the pain of, of a fallen colleague. Um, I, I've, I've lost, um, unfortunately I've lost colleagues at, at work, um, and um so i mean i know you know i know i know that pain and i know the sense of family that, that you have at work and i and i don't want to i want i don't want to deny that to people um but i you know i'm not sure if i'm going to take the meeting or not with uh with officer mcgilly because i i also feel that that when when you're in certain types of service you have a responsibility to have certain levels of knowledge so so are there are there 905ers that are out there that think, oh, the thin blue line is just a way of of one officer honoring another officer. I think, I mean, I think that's fair, at least before this podcast, that that perspective is out there. But officers themselves, I think, have a responsibility to to understand the systemic forces at play in in police services. The fact that that police services specifically have been used as tools of colonialism, tools to oppress indigenous peoples. That that officers themselves, and and predominantly in the United States, but but Canada is not not immune to anti-black racism that's directly connected to police services. And so, so for officers and particularly for the Halton police service to post the thin blue line, listen, mourn, you know, mourn how you see fit. I don't want to take that away from you, but, but leaders in indigenous communities, such as myself, leaders in black communities across Canada, coast to coast, including black lives matter leadership and, and beyond have said that, that this symbol has become associated with white supremacy. The symbol stems stems from a racist police chief in in LA back in back in the 1950s. Like there there's a generation plus of history of this. So so I don't for the general public, I'll buy ignorance as as a defense for for officers. I, I think they they agree to uphold a higher standard of responsibility when they put on the uniform. So so I I don't accept as a blanket argument from from any officer that oh oh I didn't I didn't know. If I'm if I'm telling you that that as a non-white person I'm associating the symbol with white supremacy, and then if you are after hearing that, still choosing to use it to wear it to show it, even in this time of of mourning, I I think I think it's a a, a weak argument at best. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because that 
I wasn't sure how I was going to segue into this, but you brought up, so give me the, threw the door open for me, but you're right. I mean, that we do see the thin blue line, you know, you see it being used, for example, at the, during, during the truck convoy uh, uh, to, to Ottawa, you see it used in far right circles more and more. And I, I, again, I'm a, I'm a white man, so I, I don't have this, it doesn't have the same emotional resonance with me. But I can imagine, you know, there's something you said, but like there's, even if you want, you use the symbol in a, in a sense of love and respect, it's being co-opted by those who want to use it as a tool of power and subjugation. Um, and I, I think, it, you know, it's akin to uh, right now, you know, in, in far right circles that we hear about people using the red ensign, the, 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 the flag that was flown by Canadian armed forces during the first and second world war before you had the maple leaf as the as the flag we're hearing more and more like it's being co-opted by you know proud boys and, and and far right elements as a symbol for them it's our way maybe to take back because i think that the power the, the onus is on the rest of us to kind of take back those symbols and say these symbols are meant for all of us or they're meant for to be used in a, in a symbol of honor and respect and love and I'm wondering, is there a way for us to take back the thin blue line symbol and say, so that it, it is universal for all people in this country as a sign of respect for those who never lives for all Canadians, not just a certain segment of, of Canadians. It, it's tough. I mean, I think, I think before now it might've been possible uh, before, again, before 2020, it, it may have been possible but it, it's sort of like um, uh, if you're asking your teacher for an opportunity to do a makeup assignment, and if it's the first time you approach your teacher and say, hey, listen, can I have a little bit of extra time to, to get my markup or, or to get a passing grade? And, you know, if it's the first time that you do it, your teacher is, is likely to say, you know, depending on the teacher, I, I, think, I think an exception can be made because you've generally exhibited good, good habits. I, I would say that when it comes to the police and, and honestly, Canada at, at large or, or broader Canadian culture, I would say that there's been plenty of opportunity before now to to try to establish these symbols to represent other values, but but there was just such an overwhelming of of a barrage of information really in the last decade, but even in the last couple of years, where it's been shown that the time and time again these police forces have operated with a certain level of impunity. They still do to a certain degree. Again, I reference the Calgary Police Force, who's been told by black leaders in Calgary and been told by the political branch, listen. The symbol is no longer neutral. We're we're telling you openly that the symbol is no longer neutral. And and so afterwards to go and to use it, I, I think it's why, again, I can't speak for the Halton Police Service, but I, I think it's why they they chose to pull the symbol down. And I and it's surely not because of my tweet, but but tweets like my tweet that that gave them the message that they they need to express this differently. And I and I love what the um community members of Caledonia did. I I I watched. Uh, video on on the local news there where uh, a bunch of the moms and community members in Caledonia were tying blue ribbons to to the fire or to the uh, hydro poles in in their community and so there there still are ways uh, sh you know shine a shine a blue light like there you know there's all there's all kinds of different things you can do to to express like what if if you're choosing now to use this symbol that has been shown over the course of a generation to be associated with white supremacy, white nationalism, uh, Blue Lives Matter movements, other other uh, known problematic movements, then then I think I think it's too late. Basically, it's a lot of words for. I guess I could have answered your question in in no, really we, three words and said it's it's too late. We, we it's a podcast. We have we have to fill up the minutes, so it's all <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, 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 I there's no easy answer. I mean, I'm not naive enough to say, okay, Carl, you and I are going to solve this issue of you know reconciliation and white nationalism and white supremacy all within a half hour discussion that's not going to happen but you know i just i know there are circles there, there you talk to different people and they, they nobody wants you know wants that feeling of racism white supremacy i, I think the majority of people honestly do not want that but it's a matter of cultural impacts uh i guess feeding into our narratives like for majority of white people like they, we have positive positive or no interaction with police services like I, I i just don't have 
to worry about police in my life, really, unless I need them to come in. Um, and I, I guess, like, I guess that's like kind of fun, fundamentally is where like our two cultures are coming from. I know traditionally First Nations were heavily policed. I mean, we all know like the RCMP was originally founded really as a way to colonize for the First Nations land in this country. Like it, it's, and there's not really a question, but like that's, that's kind of like the, the point of, of just where we our two cultures are coming from. My, my interaction with police is on a temporary basis as, as needed. Yours is more, more of a, a permanent, almost like, it's almost part of like a lifestyle. And that's, I'm not, I'm not, that's probably not the right word to use. I apologize for that now that it comes out, but it's just, I guess like our, our, it's, it's, we're coming from two very different worlds on this matter. And I just want to like, you know, is there, is, where, where, do, where's the common ground here to kind of, you know, how do, how do we ensure that policing is fair and equitable for all people that it really is, should be there on an as needed basis? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're looking at, um, if you look at what's happening in the city of Toronto, uh, you know, I think we both agree that, that uh, Canada does not, in fact, revolve around what happens in the city of Toronto, <laughs> yes. despite what they may indicate uh, at at times. But if you look at the, the the continuous raises to the police budget by a place like right. the city of Toronto as a remedy to there, there's now measurable increases in crime in the city, in gun violence in the city, in violent crime in the city, theft. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and when you look at policing as the largest budget item surpassing things like public housing and, and other social services and, and supports, I, I think, I think there's, there's math based evidence that the extra, what, 48 million or however much is going to go into the, the right. uh, police budget in, in this next round of, of raises that police forces continuously get year after year after year after year, uh, in spite of increasing crime uh now uh i i think i think there's evidence to be made that again it's it's time to have and i know this is unpopular in a lot of circles but it's time to have discussions around defunding the police and and what that should look like and and i, I think that those discussions should be based around the fact that again it it's the police are, are never they're they're never going to be part of a long-term solution to any problem that i'm looking to solve uh you know when it comes to and again i want to I want to pay tribute and, and respect to the fact that when when there when there are terrible car accidents on on the highways and there there are certain tragic events that that happen and police officers are charged with the task of walking towards the conflict and and so I, I never want to minimize that and the, and the difficulty of that and I do think that we need emergency response personnel that are that are most suited to that but but I, I think that they're I, I think the police have also done a fantastic job marketing themselves as solutions to problems that they're not really solving police are mostly reactive and and again, there's volumes and volumes and volumes of of evidence of that. If if something has been stolen, sure, you want a police officer to come and to to catch the bad guy afterwards. Uh, and and certain downtowns, like our own downtown association in in St. Catharines, has been thankful for increased police patrols uh, at times like New Year's Eve to to protect businesses and to keep windows from getting smashed in and stuff. And and we all even slow down when we're on the highway and we see a police officer on the side of the road. So there, I mean, there is a certain deterrence logic to to police but i also think like they they are so expensive like they are just such here here in niagara again our our largest single line item budget line item is is for the police and that's before public housing and and if you just flip those budgets and you just put the extra money that goes from police into public housing and took some people who are who are resorting to to a life of of crime because they don't have economic opportunity like like how much would you see that narrative that narrative changed. So, so, I mean, there, there's a, I mean, you sort of frame the question, I think about how can we come together on our perceptions of the police? And, and I don't know that I can ever, I can ever truly meet you where you might be at in terms of the perceptions that you have around police um, right, right now. And, and also police are winning this argument. They're winning it. They're getting, they're getting their increases. They're getting their supports. They get the, the media. Uh, if I had a nickel, I, I could probably go right now and open today's paper and find at least one or two stories that are basically just a reprint verbatim of something that came directly from a police service without any critical thought from a journalist or, or without any balance of, of perspectives. And it, it just happens all the time. Well, there's something you said that just 
kind of flicked a switch in my head was that the police are so reactive. And I think you're, you might've just hit the nail on the head on that statement is that we always call the police in after the fact, right? After a crime has been done, they're called in to investigate, build a case, prosecute and all that. And when we hear statements like defund the police, I, I, I see the point in it. Like it, it does seem like an inefficient use of funds. We are talking about proactive solutions such as housing, you know, housing, uh, proper mental and addiction services uh, for those who are in need rather than the reactive solution of, oh, I'm going to send the police into a violent situation where somebody is down, down in the luck, desperate, addicted to whatever, which makes the situation that much more violent and more worse. Whereas if we had a proactive solution and say, well, let's get the help to them now so that they're able to find a path into a more productive member of society, the police really are only called in for really those bad situations, the situation where regardless of whether you are non-white or white, you say, no, we need police to help control the situation. And I guess that's kind of where we get in with the police that we're using a reactive solution for really what should be a proactive problem. And there, there lies the problem. Like that's, there's that, that friction of, you know, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole when we call the police for everything. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it reflects a broader problem that we have in in society at at large. Uh, you and I had a little bit of a conversation uh, off air before we before yeah. we hopped on before we hopped on, and um, some sometimes there's an adversarial approach to how we solve a lot of things. We were talking about governance in particular, and you had this idea that that if instead of political parties sitting across from each other, they sat in a circle in a more collaborative environment using using indigenous worldviews. I, I think I think that makes sense. So when it when it comes to the police. Uh, I, I really, again, I, I think that there are officers and, and I've been, I have a, I have a radio show on 610 CKTV. I, I host the drive, uh, regularly. I'm one of the rotating hosts that's uh, two to 6 PM on 610 CKTV in, in Niagara, in addition to one dish one <laughs> Saturdays from 10 to noon. So there we go. There's, there's my <laughs> plugs, uh, for the different, for the different shows that I'm doing. I'll expect um, the check in the mail. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Bell Media, uh, care of Carl Doxtater. Uh, so, um, but, but I, I actually, I got contacted by, by an officer and I was, I was making a point critical of uh, the convoy and talking about the role of, of politicians in the convoy movement. And I was surprised that an officer texted into the show and and was a took a position that was a little bit different than than I thought an officer might take and and so I won't I won't uh, without without the text right in front of me and without the information it was just it was just a really thoughtful text that that reminded me that there there's a diversity of viewpoints in in any large occupation including police officers and I'll, and I'll bet there are officers as a matter of fact I've, I've talked to officers in Niagara that that are dealing with people that are that are houseless. And that have the very difficult task of every single morning going through and putting Band-Aid solutions forward for the same people that are experiencing chronic, deep-rooted underlying problems. And, and therein lies the problem in our society, where we, we tend to gravitate towards leaders that are looking for, for simple solutions. I, I really, uh, I went hard on One Dish, One Mike this, this past Saturday when I was talking about this issue. I, I went hard against Premier Ford uh, and his comments um, initially he gave condolences and and it was very thoughtful and he and he put out a tweet that i thought was very very appropriate but then the next day in in a statement that the premier released to to the press and others he went on about the tragic killing of, of constable perchala which is totally appropriate uh but then he said it's the latest plea for the federal government to address the revolving door of violent criminals caused by our country's failed bail system and uh, he went on to say too many innocent people have lost their lives at the hands of dangerous criminals who should have been behind bars, not on our streets. Enough is enough. Now, now take this case. And this is an awful case. And, and it was, I, you know, it, it's in the courts. So it's all alleged to have happened. But there is alleged to have been an absolutely awful ambush that I think is reprehensible 
and and fits the definition of some of this uh, otherwise inflammatory language that the, that the premier is using. But but the revolving door of violent criminals has been a talking point of John Tory and of Premier Ford for long before this violent crime ever happened. I think it's terribly opportunistic to take this terrible tragedy and to spin it into these talking points that are also adversarial. I, I, more more cops, more guns, more conflict, more violence, more mandatory minimum sentences, more courts, more bureaucracy, more systems, more money. Uh, applied the way that we've been applying it obviously hasn't helped address the root issues that lead to a lot of crime there are people that don't have what they need and i think that's fundamentally at the root of why you have teenagers 13 year olds stealing uh stealing vehicles in in uh, the greater toronto area as part of a broader crime right. ring they're they're not right, right. they're not bad uh they're they're being conditioned by opportunity to do these things take take away the need and then you don't have 13-year-olds stealing vehicles. Yeah. It, it, well, I mean, we're getting into the the criminology of, of bad behavior. You know, like it, it's and it's comp I think it, you're right, it's more complex than just saying, oh, they're just bad people. Because here's the thing: if it's a revolving door of people going in and getting out on the bail system and they're they're going into commit crimes, why? Like it, that's not, that's not empirically. It's not the case. Like our our cities are on the whole very safe to be in. They're very safe to walk around in. They are not these lawless ghettos of criminality. You know, where you have like roving gang gangs of kids looking to pillage and plunder. You know, unsuspecting white people. Because I'll be honest, it's like that's it's the same rhetoric we heard in the states, right? For like during the eighties. In the 90s that was used against uh uh well non-white communities of see there are, there are communities of violence and and criminality and and you know you, you as a white person you can't be trusted going to those neighborhoods and it's it, it does trouble me when i see that rhetoric kind of being mirrored here up in canada um you know it, it, it's funny like we we use the term it was a few bad apples right like when we use when when police cross the line and we see an abuse of power we always hear oh it's a few bad apples we never talk about it, it could be an institutionalized like their training their their conditioning you know their funding that kind of thing we never talk about that it's just oh it's a few bad apples but it's never a few bad apples when this happens you know uh to the when this when this officer was was shot it's never well that's just a really bad situation let's look into the, that situation it's always well, clearly it's a systemic problem. We're just letting all the bad actors out of jail on like weekend passes. And we, you know, they make it sound like they walk into the Canadian tire, pick up a gun and they just go, you know, shooting off willy nilly into the air. That's not how it is. You know, you're right. Like that rhetoric just doesn't help the situation. It doesn't help us actually tackle these issues head on where, you know, proper housing, proper uh, education opportunities, proper just you're right just opportunities for people to live better better lives is really what we need and that that costs money that that takes money and it takes a, an investment of time and resources and honestly a little bit of compassion and empathy to say to somebody like how do we how do i make your life better um which again comes back to the notion of well we'll have the police solve it right oh you're getting out of line send in the police to bust heads and and that'll teach you you know don't don't break the law and and whatnot so yeah that does trouble me when i hear that rhetoric kind of being mirrored here in this here in this country by conservative uh, uh politicians um well i want i want to seize on that point when you say this country because that, that's something that i think you hit the nail on that i think i think canadians like to see themselves as more compassionate than than americans and when it comes to understanding the complexity of, of houselessness and of the the so-called revolving door of the failed bail system in in Canada, I, I do think that Canadians have an understanding that that if if they choose to get as polarized as the Americans, the systems can break just like American systems have broken. Like the prison system in America is broken. I I, I think the prison system in Canada is is clearly broken as well, uh, but in but in different ways. Uh, and and so that that's something that I just I just wanted to seize on that point because I, I do think that while these problems are complex and while people love 
the folksy premier of, of Ontario and his cheesecake recipes and, and everything else. And his, his, you know, quick punchy one-liners, he, he is a charismatic man. Uh, I've, I've had opportunity to do some work around him and, and he, he's got charm. Uh, but I, I hope that the Canadians can appreciate it. And, and I have confidence that Canadians can appreciate that you and I can see things like the thin blue line differently. Um, we can, we can have a deep dive into the complexities of, of the, I do agree that the bail system has failed. I just disagree on, on the reasons that the premier Ford is putting forward. But, but I think we have the space for these dialogues. I think it's what podcasting is, is great for and, and shows like yours that, that, you know, take something that it's seemingly simple. The thin blue line, you know, we just have two tweets that that are, you know, there's two people on either side of it. But it turns out there's this huge gray area of conversation that that we need to discuss. So I'm I'm grateful that you're doing it. But I wanted to seize particularly on the on the point that we have a test case of getting tougher on crime. And that test case is the United States of America. And if that's what Canadians want, um, then then they're gonna get something that looks a lot like a lot of the aggravated problems that Americans are are struggling to deal with now. Well, and that's, you're right. I guess I just look south of the border and look, you know, as a society, it's a very segregated society. I mean, like, like, and I do mean that in the strictest sense of the word. I mean, it's not an official policy on paper, but you go through the states and, you know, there's, there are black neighborhoods and there are white neighborhoods. Uh, there are Latino neighborhoods and Korean, like it, it, Korean neighborhoods, like they just, they're neighborhoods, they just, they like to segregate and keep everything apart and when that friction happens when different cultures rub, rub up against each other it's well suddenly the cops and bus heads and keep it and keep order but i don't see it, it it's working like i mean when you, you have to privatize jails and prisons to just keep them in the incentive to just keep them full i'm not sure that that's a a, a society that we're willing to embrace i think you know kind of coming back to the notion of like reconciliation what that means and it, 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 i'm worried about it becoming like a buzzword and just kind of a token word in our in our society as a whole because it keeps coming back but i do think there's something to be said about in this situation of just what does reconciliation means and it's, it's not a matter of this the this alleged perpetrator getting off scot-free because some kind of pc wokeness it's about true justice happening here a crime has been committed justice will be served justice will be done fairly and equitably blindly free from uh that and that's where like this rhetoric doesn't doesn't help us this rhetoric doesn't help us just see like let's let's approach this as a fair equitable and look for real justice to be done here because Ultimately, we do. We all have to get along. Like we, you know, the the. I know that this crime happened uh, just on the border of the Six Nations. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's we need to we need to kind of find a way to live co coexist and live with each other in a harmonious way. You know, and not. And I find that yeah, that rhetoric just doesn't help us in this in this time. It, I don't know. It's it's cheap political points because I know they're trying to they're trying Doug Ford's trying to use it to drive attention away from his controversies uh, regarding completely unrelated matters. Uh, I'll give him that. And we know that Pierre Polyev at the at the federal level, he's trying to capitalize. Well, you know, I can be the tough on crime prime minister and make some hay against his political opponents. And I think that just cheapens the dialogue that needs to happen right now. You know, it's that, that common humanity of a human being has died, wrongfully so. Let's all take a minute, regardless if we're Indigenous, Black, White, whatever, and just grieve for that. A human being has has been taken away from us in the prime of their life. That's and then if we can have that empathy, can we share that with other situations when other members of different communities, when they lose their lives prematurely to have that empathy and say like, what happened here? How do we, and sometimes we're not talking just with, in regards to police interactions. I mean, just in general, when a, you know, when a young indigenous man or woman, black man or woman loses their life due to addiction, just poverty, you know, poverty, anything, anything of that nature, 
and we have that common humanity. So like, what happened here? We, you know, could this have been avoided? And yeah, that rhetoric just kind of blocks that discussion from happening or from us going down that path and having that hard conversation because it's not going to be an easy answer. I just, I don't see that happening. Yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. And, and again, I really believe that there's a big appetite for that. I, Harper, uh, Stephen Harper had a tough on crime political agenda and it worked enough to to get him, I, I think, the one majority, uh, and then to string together a bunch of minority governments to to keep him in office for a while. And then now the liberals are are kind of undoing a lot of that. Uh, I I've worked in court. I was a court worker for two years, and then I was an executive director at a friendship center for two years that that organized a justice program across four different friendship centers. And and while while it was my colleagues that did that legwork, uh, it was still part of my responsibility to work directly with the program. And and so I and I and that's that would be my challenge. So. So instead of presenting myself as some sort of an expert here, uh, though I can qualify certain perspectives based on based on direct work experience, I, I would I would challenge people that have preconceived notions around crime and criminals and violent criminals and the broken bail system to to spend some time in the courts. Our our courts are public. Anybody mm -hmm. can go right now, and and especially now that it's post COVID, you can go to your local courthouse, find out find out where the bail court is, and go and sit in there for for a morning. Sit in there for an entire morning. And hear the stories of the people that that end up in the bail court on on say a Monday morning after after a long weekend, and yeah, there you know there's jerks in there. <laughs> there there are people that that I think need to learn some hard lessons. There there are some you know it's it maybe a little judgy of me, but there are some people in there that I think are kind of losers, and and could make better decisions. But but it's just been over the course of sitting in those bail courts for the course of several years, they're there are more people that that have a lack of opportunity and are struggling and need help and need something better than than again a very expensive court system i think i think an inefficient system when it comes to lawyers and legal aid and that whole process is is a hot mess and and was by the way defunded uh, uh arbitrarily by uh, 60 million dollars one of the very first things that Doug Ford did was was gut the legal aid service by tens of millions of dollars uh, so it's a little disingenuous again for the premier to go, oh, the bail system's broken. But meanwhile, you've taken away one of the most powerful tools that, that people have to help themselves early on right. in the court process, which is duty counsel, which is properly publicly funded counselors, uh, lawyers that can guide people in, in the right direction. So, so again, it, it, we, we're fooling ourselves when we think there's simple solutions to complex problems. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, that's, I, th I thought and that's kind of what kind of bring this conversation back full circle is one, one reason why I wanted to have you on that that simple statement of this symbol, the thin blue line symbol, it drives fear into uh, into the the communities that ultimately the police are supposed to go in and serve. They're, they're you know they're there to serve these communities is on paper. And you know what, what kind of gave me hope in that in that situation. Was the fact that the Halton PD did take it down, you know, like like they, you get. I do think we have to give the Halton PD a lot of credit to say, yeah, I think they posted it in a, in a sense of love and respect for off, uh, Officer uh, Perchella, but to say, yeah, but there's a big segment of the population that looked at that and say, okay, what's going on here? You know, are you are you coming for me next? Um, and for them to say, no, that wasn't our intent. We're sorry, and they took it down. You know, I, I, I saw that as a, as a, as a, almost as an olive branch. Say, yeah, we know, we know, we need to reach out to these communities because I do, I know for a fact that the Halton Police are working to reach out to minority communities in Halton. And I think they were like, yeah, this, we think it means something, but the impact is different, and we need to to recognize that. And so, you know, was it a clumsy attempt? Clumsy process yeah clearly but i do like i i again I, I think there's hope coming out of this that it's not a not a question of political correctness it's a matter of they understand we need to serve these communities and we need to build relationships with these communities and we can't do that for saying um we matter more than than you which is what i'm hearing is kind of like that's what the symbol means to these communities um yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, this is going to be a complex discussion that is not going to be solved in, the, in a half hour 
podcast uh, conversation, but I think it's one that I hope uh, we can continue to have in a good way uh, if there's such a way, but I also hope that, you know, if people are listening to this, they can have that kind of conversation and have those meaningful conversations with people in their lives. You know, I guess I, I believe this question to you. Um, for the for the police for the police services, you know the OPP, who have not had the greatest record of of cooperation with uh, First Nations in this province. What what in your mind could they do to to have have a proper relationship, a, a relationship equality and and respect with the First Nations communities, uh, not just uh, you know the Six Nations Reserve, but those who are living inside. Our our, uh, our communities, you know, Hamilton, Burlington, St. Catharines, Niagara, and Toronto. What what would you, as a First Nations individual, want to see the the police do to uh, to put your your yourself at ease? I I can make it I can make it easy because unfortunately, Dudley George lost his life at at the hands of OPP officers. Who, I mean, there there were just uh, actually Kim Wheeler. And Karen Pugliese do a fantastic job unpacking what happened at Ipperwash as part of Canada Land Back, uh, which which they did a two episode special on. So so they talk about it, but but I, and, and I I actually studied this when I was going to go work in the courts and understanding that that uh, the police have an arm's length relationship with with the crown uh, by by necessity, and and I think they do that well for the most part. But but I would I would say read the Ipperwash inquiry findings uh, and pick pick the parts that are that are most appropriate to where you think that would apply to your job as, as an officer or if you're in a leadership role with, with the police service or, or police force. Um, I, I read, uh, he's, he's not indigenous, but he was the executive director of uh, Aboriginal legal services. And Jonathan Rudin wrote, um, I, th- I think it's like a 70 page report. So it's, I mean, it's a little bit on the, on the lengthy side, but it's publicly available. Uh, it's easy enough to get. And, and I would read Jonathan Rudin's report on the upper Wash inquiry um, that, that talks about the history of policing, the state of policing, the problems that led to to Dudley George being killed by police officers, and then some suggestions on on what could be done afterwards. So, so I think I think this is a pretty straightforward uh, uh, set of solutions in there. On on the most basic level, there's there's two things that happen with police services when Indigenous people call. Uh, police officers either don't don't come as quickly as they should or they don't take the crimes as seriously or there's systemic factors at, at play such as such as our friends in, in the Cree community that, that unfortunately had the had the stabbing incident and the police weren't um, there was a mix of they were slow to respond but there also was the reality of urban policing is, is very different than something you and I had to deal with Joel. Uh, but either way, uh, police have a reputation for responding slower to our concerns when we're the victims and quicker to our concerns when we're deemed to have been the perpetrators. And, and again, I think there's empirical evidence that, that backs that up. And that's not just an opinion. You, you can find that there's evidence of that happening time and time again. There's complicated systemic factors why that happens. But either way, the onus is on the police to, to figure out how to how to solve that that portion of it. So so read the Upper Wash Inquiry. Um, understand how to build those relationships with First Nations peoples in your community. Uh, you you do have an Indigenous Services Friendship Center in in the 905 area, Peel Indigenous Services uh, Friendship Center. We we have Niagara Regional Native Center and the Fort Erie Native Friendship Center, my home home community, Hamilton uh, Friendship Center. There's two friendship centers in Toronto. So depending on where people are listening to your podcast right now, if if there's officers listening, if they're still listening at this point, uh, first off, thank you thank you for checking out the show and and. For for being patient with me challenging some of your perceptions but then on a secondary basis if, if you don't have a relationship with with your friendship center uh or your chapter of native women or other indigenous organizations in your in your community build build that relationship find a way to to build that bridge of, of friendship because again i can i can i can um get as mad as i want at policing as an institution it's harder for me when an officer is standing in front of me especially if they're willing to have a frank conversation to to reject some of their standpoints uh, and especially if they're listening and we're listening to each other so so the, the, those are a couple a couple suggestions on on how to bridge that gap in a good way yeah um you know what i think we'll have to leave it at that for uh, for this episode um but again this isn't uh uh a situation that's going away anytime soon. So I suspect we might be seeing this uh, in the future as well, but I hope that, uh, I hope we're on the, on the path to a better, a better place for both uh, 
for, for everyone involved, I, I should say. Thanks very much, Carl, to uh, for coming on to the podcast today. And uh, uh, we'll see about getting that that jacket on uh, on your fifth time around. Yeah, I, I appreciate you having me. And I'm a, I'm a medium slim fit, just, just so you know. <laughs> so uh, just uh, talk to your tailor. Uh, honestly, Joel, thanks. Thanks for thinking of me. Thank you very much. Take care. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we we the perfect perfect podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous. Or sexy. Catch us on the Dean Blundell Network or on our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Because Because democracy democracy is is something something you do. do.